There's an old story about a factory workman. One afternoon, as the whistle blew, it was time for the men on his shift to go home. They all gathered their things together and began shuffling across the courtyard toward the front gate. At the front gate, there was a, 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 a small area through which they had to pass, and there was always a guard stationed there to check to make sure that they weren't removing things from the factory that they shouldn't be removing. So essentially, he was there to keep the guys from stealing anything. Well, this workman shuffled across in this long line across, the, across that open area and finally arrived with his wheelbarrow, and, and, and he had this wooden box in the wheelbarrow. And the guard said, what do you have there? The old workman said, a box. <laughs> and the workman said, well, I mean, the guard said, I know you got a box. What's in the box? And the workman said, well, I've got some sawdust in the box. The guard kind of ruffled his brow a little bit and, and said, you mind if I take a look? Sure, have a look. So the guard opened it up. Sure enough, sawdust actually put his hand down in there to make sure there wasn't anything else in there and said, okay, you're free to go. The next day, the whistle blew in the afternoon. The old workman walked across with his wheelbarrow across that open area, arrived at the guard. They had basically the same conversation again. What he got there? I've got a box of sawdust. Do you mind if I take a look? Certainly have a look. He opened it up, put his hand in, there's sawdust. Uh, the workman explained, you know, we throw away thousands of pounds of sawdust here every week. Just taking a little bit of it home. This same thing, this same scene replayed day after day, day three, day four, day five, week two, week three. After three weeks, as it was about to repeat again, the workman arrived there with his wheelbarrow at the guard gate. Guard said, what do you have in there? I've got sawdust. He opened it up, took a look, put his hand in there. Sure enough, finally he said, look, to the workman. I have a suspicion that there is something going on here. I have a suspicion that you are in fact stealing something, but I can't figure it out. Here's the deal. If you will just come clean and tell me what you're stealing, I promise I won't turn you in. The old workman said, all right, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. Stealing wheelbarrows. How often can we become distracted by the little things, by the inconsequential things, by the trivial things, by the meaningless things, distracted by things that don't matter, and miss what's going on right under our nose? Miss something that is so obviously important. Well, we spend our days staring at screens, don't we? Little handheld screens, big screens, uh, TV screens. Uh, we're watching movies. We're checking our Facebook. We're checking our Twitter. We're, check, we're, watch, we're, we're constantly looking at screens. And if we're honest, 90%, more like probably 99% of the stuff we're looking at doesn't really matter <laughs> all that much. And on top of that, we live in Dallas, Texas, which is a great city to get distracted in. There's plenty of cool stuff here to get distracted by. Lots of diversions going on. But why don't we just zero in on one small thing? 
the British coined a phrase or a British uh, researcher coined a phrase called nomophobia. And I suspect some of you suffer from nomophobia, which is the fear of being without a cell phone. Reasonably certain we got some nomophobes here, right? <laughs> Do you feel anxious when you don't have your cell phone? Are you afraid of accidentally leaving the house and heading for work without your cell phone? Do you always need to check your cell phone to make sure you haven't missed a call or a text message or a Facebook update? Do you obsessively check your phone? You might be a nomophobe if that's you, right? And I did some research on us and our cell phones, and this was a few years back. I suspect it hasn't gotten any better. Maybe it's gotten worse. But they found that people check their cell phones on average 34 times a day. I'm sure that's about right for me. 34 times a day on average. They found that 55% of women would rather leave home without their makeup on than leave home without their cell phone. They found, this one's an interesting little tidbit of information, 11% of respondents would rather leave home without pants on. <laughs> than without their cell phone. I'm not in that category. Okay. Nearly 50%, this is where it gets a little more serious, nearly 50% of people, think about this, mom and dad, nearly 50% of people between 18 to 44 admit to having used their mobile devices to send suggestive pictures, while 31% have used their mobile device to coordinate or commit adultery. 30% of those surveyed said that their mobile devices come between them and their spouse. So technology can really bless us, certainly. It does. But it can also pull our attention toward things that don't matter or even things that are destructive to us. A new book by a Stanford psychiatrist whose name I dare not try to pronounce comes to the conclusion that our addiction to the internet, that's his topic, is making us angry, selfish, and impatient. So I wonder, in all of this, how many wheelbarrows are going out right in front of our eyes as we sift through sawdust, you know? We get so distracted that we hardly give much thought to values to spiritual health, to raising children, to making our marriages stronger. We are too busy. We are too preoccupied um, with the sawdust <laughs> to give our attention to the wheelbarrows passing by. We're in our Underdogs series. I want you to meet John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the living human megaphone of God to pull people away from their preoccupations and their busyness back to what really matters. His look, his constant shouting, his odor perhaps, and well, his honesty really got people's attention. Even in the first century, 
So many years ago, regular folks got distracted. Good people got distracted. Religious people got distracted. People got distracted by their lives. And John the Baptist was God's way of getting their attention. Right? So he was your typical homeless motivational speaker down by the river. All four Gospels in the New Testament talk about this guy. In Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist is, chapter 3, verse 3, a voice of one crying out, a voice of one calling out in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And the apostle, the apostle John, in John chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. Jesus, the Messiah, was right behind him. Jesus, the Messiah sent from God, was coming. Would anyone notice? Would anyone pay attention or was everybody too busy? God was about to speak. Would anyone hear? So John the Baptist was sent by God to get people's attention to call them back to things that really mattered. So this, by using this homeless underdog of the New Testament, we find that his message still resonates. His purpose still resonates because we, well, we're still pretty distracted. We're still pretty busy. In fact, I would think we're probably a hundred or a thousand times more busy and more distracted than people were in the first century. Thank goodness they didn't have Facebook or Twitter back then because I can only imagine flocks would have gone out to see him just so they could have Instagrammed pictures of him, right? And said, check this guy out, hashtag derelict. I mean, this guy was unique, was unlike any preacher that they had ever heard, and they probably wouldn't have paid much attention to what he was about. They couldn't have gotten past the way he looked and the way he smelled. But really, I think the packaging of John the Baptist was part of the message. I think the fact that he didn't care what you thought about how he looked. I think the fact that he was too poor for you to do anything to him or take anything away from him. This was part of who he was. Because the implicit message then was, I am not sold out to this culture. I don't care what people think about me. I'm not a puppet of the establishment. And being poor means I have nothing to lose. So I can tell you the truth. No strings attached. That was John the Baptist. Preaching out in the desert. But before we get into his message and what was going on with his ministry, a little bit of biographical information about John the Baptist. Um, first of all, as we mentioned last week, as we were talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, there was another miraculous birth in Luke chapter 1, in the beginning of the New Testament. So you've got Jesus being born of a virgin. You also have his cousin, John the Baptist, who's being at the other side of the spectrum, being born to a couple that is way too old to be having a child. They were barren. They were never able to conceive. Elizabeth is pregnant. It's John the Baptist, the one who is going to prepare the way. He is about six months older than Jesus. Obviously, he was orphaned at a young age because his parents were so 
old when he was born. And it is likely, I don't want to get into the, all the theological debates about this or, or things like this. I think it's very likely that he was raised by a group of wild men out in the desert called the Essenes, right? The Essenes were radically devoted to holiness. They were radically devoted to making sure they were alert to all of the signs of the time so that they would not miss the coming of Messiah. The Essenes were this community that devoted themselves every day to to copying scriptures, to, to being silent, to praying together, to fasting, and to a very strict code of conduct that governed basically all of the behaviors within their hermit-like community. These were the Essenes. I think it's very possible, perhaps even probable, that John the Baptist was raised. In fact, they were out in that wilderness area. You may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the ones that produced um, that stuff, right? Well, Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, he begins preaching. It says that people went out to him from Jerusalem, the big capital there in Judea, and from the whole region of the Jordan, the whole river valley. Now, you might have gathered this already, but John the Baptist wasn't the kind of guy that was preaching like syrupy self-help kinds of sermons, was he? Um, He wasn't preaching the kind of thing that nowadays we would think would attract multitudes. Um, he was, it wasn't a health and wealth, wealth message. It was more of a turn or burn kind of message. He was essentially a first century doomsday prepper, right? You better do this and this or else, right? God is coming. If you do not repent, you're going to miss out on your chance to connect with God. You're going to miss out on the coming of the Savior, the Messiah. And so... He didn't want anyone to get distracted, miss their moment to connect with God. His main message was very simple, not a complicated preacher at all. His main message recorded for us in Matthew 3 verse 2 is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Get ready. God is coming. Get ready, the Messiah's car has just pulled out in front of, up in front of your house. He's about to ring your doorbell. Get ready, the kingdom is near. Repent, turn, prepare your heart for God. And when they ask for clarification, boy, that's a little vague, that's a little, I don't know. Give us some specificity. He did. Boy, did he. Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. What should we do? What should we do specifically to get ready? The crowd asked. John answered, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. To be ready for God, you need to be a generous person. A person who shares out of the abundance that he has blessed you with. Now, Another group comes to him, Luke chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, tax collectors. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what shall we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Appropriate enough for this time of year. Amen? Don't collect any more than you are required to. They were greedy. 
They were corrupt. They were unfair. Be fair. Enforce the law, yes. Don't go beyond it. Then some soldiers, verse 14, asked him, what shall we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. That's how you get ready for God if you're a soldier. Like I said, so all sorts of people. I mean, you name it. They're coming out to hear this wild prophet in the desert. Even the religious leadership are coming. And boy, did he have words for them. Matthew 3, verses 7 to 10. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as as our father. We're Jews. We're good. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That was his word to the religious elite. And in spite of his directness, or perhaps because of his directness, people swarmed to hear John the Baptist. Luke tells us that people even believed that he might be the Messiah, which he was always quick to debunk. No, I'm not. I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. Those who came to him found that his words had the ring of truth to them. And those who wanted to respond, those who agreed with him about their sinfulness, about their need to return to God, about all of the junk they had polluting their lives, they would repent and they would be baptized. Thus the name John the Baptist. They were demonstrating through agreeing to be baptized that they accepted his message and accepted the truth about their sinfulness. They were agreeing, I have a sin problem. I need help, right? And so people put a pause on their busy lives. They put a pause on everything that was happening back in Jerusalem. And they got to a place in the desert where they could hear a strong, a pure, an honest word from the Lord to their lives. They were making changes that lined their lives up with their lips. You see, our lips often proclaim, Jesus is Lord. I believe in God. Glory, hallelujah. But our lives don't always match up with all of that. John the Baptist was about life alignment. Let's put your life together, your behavior, the way you treat your wife, The way you prepare your taxes, the way you treat the poor, let's align that with whom you claim to be your Lord. Let's get all that working together that resonated with people. They came to hear him. And that's honestly, that's a pretty good definition of discipleship when it comes to following Jesus. It's doing what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. It's not just being a fan of Jesus, being a friend of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus, I am actively lining my life up with what I see in him. I want to be more like him, and more than that, I will practice things that will make me more like him. That's discipleship. And when people get fed up 
with the mediocrity that's going on in every part of their lives. And when they get fed up with their own sinfulness, their own addiction to sin, when they start craving something more, something deeper, something better, they just want to hear the truth. Won't be satisfied with good. They will only be satisfied with God. And so they came to hear John the Baptist. And I think for the most part, people, whether they were soldiers or tax collectors, even these religious guys that came out, I think they were hungry for something more. I think they knew there was something missing from their lives. They were like us in a lot of ways. They struggled with their sins. They had some materialism. They had some greed. They had some corruption. They could be somewhat superficial, spiritually speaking. They, and they were fed up with it. And they wanted to change. And so I believe that sinners who were willing to be honest about their sinfulness, I believe they flocked to John the Baptist for two reasons. Right? The first reason they went out to hear him was they wanted a real honest word from God about what it was they were doing to mess up their lives. Second, not only did they want the cold, hard truth about their reality, but they wanted the cool, refreshing forgiveness that comes from God. Don't think John the Baptist was all hellfire and brimstone. John the Baptist was preaching forgiveness from God as well. God wanted to forgive them. If they would turn their lives around, if they would embrace God, they would be forgiven. And one of the great things about John the Baptist, one of the things that made him powerful, I believe, is that he clearly didn't care about fitting in with people's expectations. He just wanted to be faithful to the word that he had been given, to the message he had been given. Now, check this out. One final biographical note before we kind of end up a little bit with his ministry here. Jesus, Son of God, incarnation of God, Jesus, the Messiah from heaven. There are things that Jesus said and did that show us the incredible amount of respect Jesus had for John the Baptist. Right? First, think about this. When it was time for Jesus to launch his ministry, when it was time for him to begin his teaching, all of the healing, all of the signs and wonders from God, you know where he went? He went to the Jordan River. He went to John the Baptist and he said, I am here to be baptized. I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist, cousin, will you baptize me? And you may remember the, the awkward conversation. John the Baptist is like, no way, man. I am not worthy to untie your shoes. I should be baptized by you, Jesus. But Jesus insists that John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. But more than that, it's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. At one point, Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 11, and Jesus says, up to this moment in history, no greater human being has ever been born 
than John the Baptist. Put that on your resume. (laughs) Son of God says, I am the greatest person up to this point to ever be born, to ever walk the earth. That's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Jesus also called him in the book of John, chapter 5, verse 35, a shining light. And then finally, we know how Jesus respected and loved John the Baptist by the way he mourned the death of John the Baptist. When he hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod, he goes off to a quiet place just to be alone. That's kind of when, I guess you could say, John's ministry came to a screeching halt. Um, Like I said, he did not pull punches. And in his ministry, he had begun to preach against the political power of the day, Herod. And he had begun to preach very specifically against the sins of Herod. With people flocking to hear him. With these accusations and statements getting a wide hearing, Herod saw no other option than to silence him by arresting him. Was planning to put him on trial and probably kill him. Um, John the Baptist got killed even quicker, though, because you may remember all the scenario. Here's, here's what went on here. Just a little political background, first century. Okay, Herod was very attracted to his brother's wife. Herod began an inappropriate a sexual relationship with her. Eventually, he married his brother's wife. Okay. So John the Baptist is preaching out in the wilderness about this sinfulness, right? Well, Herod's new wife did not like John the Baptist at all, as you might imagine. And at one point, when her daughter does this little dance that gets Herod in, the, in a tizzy, um, which is also kind of weird when you think about it, because this is his, now his daughter here, or his stepdaughter at least, um, he says, I will do anything for you. And she says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he reluctantly says, okay. And that's how John the Baptist loses his life. But Jesus mourns that Jesus grieves that. Well, a word about all of the baptizing. After all, we are talking about John the Baptist. A word about all of the baptizing. Mark chapter 1 verse 4 says that John's baptism brought two themes together, repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness of God. It was about agreeing with God about the ways you had lived below the standard he had called you to. And it was about accepting the cleansing forgiveness that comes from God. A more technical word about baptism. Um, We don't usually get this technical, but I think since we're talking about John the Baptist, this is the moment to do it. Um, A technical word about John the Baptist, what he was doing in terms of baptizing people and And even more broadly, baptism in the New Testament, in the ministries of Jesus, and in the ministries of John the Baptist. Um, What did it look like when someone was baptized? It looked like a burial in water. It looked like a person, it was a person being immersed in water. Now you may think, why does that matter? Well, it makes a lot more sense when you get to the ministry of Jesus and then the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Peter. Being baptized, baptizo, the word in Greek means immersion. Being baptized was a burial. It was a burial, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. It was a burial, just as Jesus was buried. 
you, when you are baptized, you are buried with Jesus. You put on everything that he won for you. Baptism is not something you do. It is something God does to you and for you. You submit to being covered with all that God has accomplished for you. It is a burial. But we even see this burial motif in the ministry of John the Baptist. It wasn't sprinkling. It wasn't a thimble full of water. In fact, we have, this is kind of an obscure passage, but it really does kind of clear things up in John chapter 3, verse 23. If you're wondering, sprinkling or immersion, right? John chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water. He was baptizing in this place because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. John needed a lot of water, right? Wasn't sprinkling, wasn't dusting people with water. He was immersing people. He was baptizoing people into the river there. May seem trivial, but like I said, when you get a little further along in the story of the New Testament, you realize, oh, baptism is a burial, Baptism is my reenactment of the gospel. It is me dying, being buried, and being raised a new person. That's what it means. So at the, at the moment where you decide to put on all that Jesus won for you through his death, burial, and resurrection, you confess his name and you're baptized into him. Now, quickly, we're going to wrap up with just a few points about what we can learn from this ancient prophet, what we can learn from John the Baptist really quickly. The first thing here is this. I need an undistracted place where I can get alone and I can hear a word from God. And I say this because a lot of us don't have that place. We have not built that in. I need an undistracted place where I can hear the word of God for my life. For the crowds in the first century, it was getting away from the hustle and bustle, the busyness and the schedules of Jerusalem, getting out into the desert, getting out into that lonely place where they could hear that clear call from God into their lives. I hope this church can be a place like that, like that for you. I hope that you have one or two friends that can, that can be a part of that with you, where you can't, you're not going to have a lot of these friends, all right? But one at least, two would be amazing. One or two friends with whom you can share anything. No secrets, no facades, no trying to impress. I can tell you what I'm dealing with. One or two people. And that those one or two people who are mature disciples of Christ can then speak truth into my life. Healing, yes. Forgiveness, yes. Mercy, yes. A hug, yes. But also a strong word if I need to hear a strong word. And finally, it's about having a time and a place where I get regular time with God. Where I get away from the noise. Where I get to spend some time in scriptures and prayer or maybe you're going to add something else to your quiet time, but a quiet time to hear from God. Now, let me say this. If you don't have this habit already, the first few days, the first couple of weeks may be awkward. In fact, I would say they will be a little awkward. Okay? 
But once you get past that first, that trial period, and you create that space, and it's a habit, it will be a time that you crave. Number two, so I need a place where I can get alone and hear the voice of God. Number two, I need to be honest about my junk. I need to be honest about my junk. I'm not saying you broadcast that, right, with a megaphone. I'm not saying you broadcast that on Twitter. But I'm saying you've got to have a place where you can really be honest. Quit acting like everything's okay when it's not. Quit acting like you don't have a sin addiction when you do. Be honest about your stuff. The gossip, the greed, the lust, the porn, bitterness, anger, jealousy, sexual sin. You get the idea. A place where you can be honest. A person with whom you can be honest. When John invited people to hear a word from God, he spoke about sexuality. He spoke about greed. He spoke about selfishness. He spoke about the things we still struggle with today. We've got to come clean about that stuff. And number three, and this is where a lot of people get hung up, right? And that is, get real about changing your junk. It's a partnership with God. It's cooperating with God. It's not just saying, God changed my life. It's agreeing with Him from the bottom of your belly. I need to change. And then making those course corrections that you need to make, believing that the Holy Spirit is going to power those. And that God's forgiveness is going to cover everything that has gone wrong or may go wrong, but you are committed to changing. I love this phrase about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. He tells these religious leaders, he says, prove. He says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Not prove by what you say, not prove by carrying a giant Torah scroll or a big King James Bible around with you. Prove by the way you live. That people at workplace will say, man, you're different. People at your house will say, daddy, you're different. People in your ministry will say, wow, you've changed. Prove by the way you live. What John was doing in the desert was Big picture here. It was a preview of coming attractions. His baptism was a preview of coming attractions. His word was a preview. In fact, he said that. He said, the kingdom is near. It's coming. It's almost here. Jesus was the show. Jesus was the main attraction. John the Baptist understood this perfectly. And probably my favorite verse in the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible, John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says, he must become greater I must become less. I'm the opener here. I'm not the main attraction. I'm the forerunner. I'm the preparer. I'm not the Messiah. He must become greater. I must become less. In Jesus, we have a hope like no other hope we can find. In Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. 
In Jesus, we have a calling that's bigger than ourselves. In Jesus, we have Holy Spirit power to really transform into the image of the Son of God. In Jesus, we have a spiritual family of brothers and sisters to help us along the journey. So what do you need to do to connect with Jesus?